that hymn, it's a great hymn for First Peter, by the way, if you hadn't put the words of the song to the book we've been studying. If you go ahead and turn your Bibles, please, to First Peter, and um, we'll see some of those themes, really a lot of those themes from all the songs today, but especially that last one in our passage. We're in First Peter chapter 1. If you're using a few Bible on page, you'll be on page 1014, and we'll read our passage in just a moment. Um, I first learned the word beneficiary when I was a young child. My parents had opened up a savings account for me when I was really little, and they wanted me to take all that birthday money that I received for my birthday or odd jobs. I, at some point, I remember nine or ten years old, began uh, mowing neighbors' yards and was able to make a little bit of money that way, and they encouraged me to put that money, that little bit of money that I was making into a savings account to keep it for safekeeping. And I don't know if you remember back in those days, back in the 80s, we used to, when we went to the, there was no online banking at that time, we used to keep track of what was in your savings account through a little book, right? When you went to go deposit your money, you took your book with you, and they would run the book through their little printer, and that kept track of the deposits you made or the debits that you were taking out. But that kept a running total through that book, so you always kind of knew, instead of going online to figure out what your balance was, you just opened a little book. There was a lot of information in that book. It was mainly to let you know how much money you had in there. But one of the things that it did have in there as well was it asked or it specified who the beneficiary of my account was. And I asked my dad what that meant because I didn't know what the word beneficiary was, this long word. And he explained to me that if something were to ever happen to me, the beneficiary would be the person who would benefit from my savings. They would receive what was left in my account. And so because I was so little, the beneficiary to my savings account was my dad. So he would be the one to benefit from all that money that I was receiving for my birthday or that I was making through mowing the yards. It would benefit him in case something should happen to me. Now, I like that word beneficiary because it's a great descriptor of our passage today. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9, Peter has been encouraging his readers with the truth that there is an inheritance waiting for us in heaven. And although it is ours, we haven't yet received the totality of it. Just like almost like a savings account, right? You put your money in the bank, it's yours, but you're not tapping into it yet. And we have this inheritance that's being reserved for us in heaven. It is ours, but we haven't received the totality of it yet. But we will realize it. We will get the benefit of it, the full benefit of it, at the end of the age. And so we are the beneficiaries of what God has promised in salvation. We have received this great salvation and we are the beneficiaries. We are the ones who benefit from that salvation he has given to us in Christ. In today's passage, Peter unfolds how it is that we are beneficiaries. The promise of salvation precedes us, and not all who observe the workings of salvation participate in it. It is for us, and we are the ones who benefit from it. And so I want to look today at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12. through 12. And consider how it is that we are beneficiaries of God's salvation. So let's look at our passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. 
What we have here in these three verses is the conclusion to this part of the letter. We mentioned the very first week that Peter used the standard pattern of a Roman letter. Right, He's following the various conventions, and right after the introduction, the, the salutation, if you will, when Peter identifies himself, identifies his readers, offers the greeting, he then launches into this prayer or this blessing. A lot of times it would be a, just a very secular wish for the gods to bless a person with good health or with prosperity or good fortune. But the Christian writers, Paul and Peter, other letter writers, would use this section to, to pray for those to whom they were writing or they are blessing God and offering a prayer of praise to God for the work that he had been doing in those people. And so we've seen here in verses 3 through 9 that Peter has been praising the Lord. And so we see verses 10 to 12 kind of culminating this, this section of the prayer. Peter's been, been praising the Lord for his work of salvation. And he's been encouraging his audience through this prayer of praise to endure in this salvation, even though they are suffering all kinds of various grievous trials. In verses 10 to 12, Peter puts the experience of his readers, their experience of salvation, in the broader context of redemptive history. He sort of takes the camera, if you will, and he opens out the lens, he pans out the lens from from their situation to help them see beyond just this momentary affliction that they are enduring. So they can understand the broader work of what God has done. They can understand the nature of God's salvation. They can understand the disposition of God toward them. And they can truly see the blessedness of their hope in the gospel. Notice this this transition that Peter makes in verse 10, beginning in the, the first part of the verse, when he says, concerning this salvation. That really is a nice summary of verses 3 through 9. And there Peter reminded his readers that they were, that these Christians have been born again by the gracious providence of God, that they have a living hope rooted in the future fulfillment of God's promises, that they have an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance kept for them, that they're presently being kept by God's power in this day for that day. They will receive praise and glory and honor from God on the day of judgment. So all these things he's mentioned in verses 3 through 9 are what God has promised for His people, what He has promised for them, what He has promised for us. And this is what they, Peter's readers, and what we today also are to anticipate and hope for and hope in. Now as great as that seems, all these blessed things that Peter has been saying about our salvation, Peter says that there is more about it that will give them greater confidence in God. There is more to their salvation that will really bolster them and give them assurance of faith even in the midst of their fiery trials. There is an assurance here in what God has done in salvation that will stir up even more hope in them. There is more here in what God has done in salvation that will anchor them to an even greater faithfulness to God. The underlying current through this passage is that we are the beneficiaries of God's great promise of salvation. We are the beneficiaries of such great promises. Promises that only others could hope for. Promises that others could only observe. We want to come away today with understanding that God's goodness in salvation is for us. The goodness of God's salvation is for us. It has been His plan for us from the very beginning. And we are supremely privileged 
to live in the blessedness of God's salvation. So as we walk through these three verses this morning, I want to make three observations. So the first observation that we want to look at this morning is that God promised salvation for us in the Old Testament. God promised salvation for us in the Old Testament. Notice that in verse 10, Peter says that the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. And he's pointing back here to the Old Testament, to the promises that God made about the salvation that he would provide for his people, those promises that he made in that era of time, in that phase of redemptive history. And so as I was thinking about this and trying to, to gather what was it, we could go through, we could do a whole sermon series just on how God was, was prophesying of salvation before it happened. So many passages, so many texts. I want to summarize all those ideas, all those things that God said in the Old Testament about salvation into three ideas. Okay? The first idea is that God's salvation would come through a person. God's salvation would come through a person. This was the promise that God made to Adam and Eve right after they sinned in the Garden of Eden. So go all the way very back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, after creation, after Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and sinned, we see the promise that God made to them immediately, at that moment, at the very beginning of human history. Remember that Adam and Eve's sin had broken fellowship between them and God, and then by them, through them, for us. We, are, we no longer have fellowship with God because of our sin. Sin breaks fellowship with God. Human beings incur a death sentence for that sin. That's how that broken fellowship is manifest, how it is expressed. There's no longer any communion between God and man because of sin. And because of our sin, there is a death sentence. We are all will die physically. We are all eternally disfellowshipped from God, objects of his wrath, condemned for eternity. But we see that in that moment, though what Adam and Eve did ruptured human fellowship with God, God graciously promised that he would save Adam and Eve and their posterity through the woman's seed, through her offspring. We read in Genesis 3.15, where the Lord says, I will put enmity between you, and he's directing this to the serpent, to the devil. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. What God is saying there is that he would raise up one of the woman's offspring, one of her seed. And that salvation for Adam and Eve and salvation for humanity would come from that offspring. But the Savior that God would send would not simply be a human being. He would also be a king, or the Hebrew word that would be used in the Old Testament era, the word Messiah. God, this person whom God would send to bring salvation, would be a king, would be the Messiah. Now, later in the Old Testament, we understand starting in with the time of Samuel and uh, Saul, David, Solomon, and so forth, God gave his people a king to represent him and to implement his kind of rule over them. And to a certain degree, David presided over such a reign. David presided over a period of prosperity and security and, and God's blessing. He instituted a, a just rule over God's people. But David's descendants failed miserably to sustain what God accomplished through David. So, what did God do? God promised his people 
through the prophets that he would raise up a future descendant of David to save his people from their enemies and inaugurate God's perfect rule over his people. A rule that was character, would be characterized by perfect justice and perfect peace and prosperity and perfect joy. We, see, we read an example of this kind of prophecy, of this kind of promise. In Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we often hear this at Christmas time, but it's good any day of the year. For to us, Isaiah says, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So the Messianic hope that Isaiah spoke of permeated the entire Israelite nation for generations. The people of Israel clung to this promise. They looked for this child. They looked for this day of salvation because they were languishing under the burdens that they had brought upon themselves by their own sinfulness. And so in the midst of all this, in the midst of their burdens, in the midst of languishing, in the midst of being subjected to the consequences for their own sin, God graciously announced through the prophets that He would send one, not merely to lift the burdens, but He would send one to take away the sin that had caused those burdens. He wouldn't just simply take away the consequences of sin, He would take away the sins themselves. So God promised in the Old Testament through the prophets, as they're prophesying about the grace that was to be for them, He is saying that salvation, God promised that salvation would come through a person. Secondly, He says that God's salvation would come through a covenant. God's salvation would come through a covenant. A covenant simply refers to an agreement between two parties, each party committing something to do something for the other. In the Old Testament, we see God making several covenants with individuals and with people, with the people of Israel as a nation. And in each of those covenants, God committed himself to saving his people. But sort of the the one covenant that, that really undergirds much of the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, we see that the Israelites failed to keep their covenant obligations. They failed to submit to God's authority. They did not obey the law that he gave to them. And so by their own disobedience, they broke this covenant that God had made with them. And though God was not obligated to commit himself to Israel, he did promise that he would make a new covenant with them. And this covenant would not only replace the old covenant, it would be the means by which sinful people could enter back into a relationship with God, a relationship that would eternally save them, an eternal covenant that would cause them to live in fellowship with God forever. It would be through this covenant that they would eternally know His grace. And again, we see an example of this in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 and 27, where God says to the prophet, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So Ezekiel's prophecy of the new covenant indicates 
what God would graciously do to save his people. He would cleanse them of their sins. He would remove the stain of sin from them, the stain of sin that impedes relationship with God. He would also give them a new heart and a new spirit. Or we can use Peter's language from verse 3, he would cause them to be born again. This is the line, this is the, 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 the thread that runs from Ezekiel through the New Testament to Peter. What, what, Ezekiel, what Ezekiel is prophesying here is that God would cause his people to be born again to a living hope. It would be through God's gracious work of salvation that they would truly be alive. And that he would give them the capacity to obey his laws and to be faithful to all that he commanded them. So this new covenant provides the framework for salvation so that God's people can not only experience God's salvation, but so that we can live according to it. It's one thing to save us. It's another thing to give us the Spirit so that we are able to walk in that salvation. That was part of the problem of the Old Testament, that the people could have their sins forgiven by these animal sacrifices, but they were not empowered to walk in God's way. And so the prophets here prophesied that God's salvation would be mediated by a new covenant. And thirdly, we see that God's salvation would also come through a sacrifice. So as the prophets are prophesying, they said that God's salvation would come through a person, it would come through a covenant, and finally it would come through a sacrifice. In order to save His people, the Savior that God would send would have to make a sacrifice. In order for them to live in a new covenant relationship with God, the Savior would have to make a sacrifice. And, of course, the Old Testament emphasizes the importance of sacrifice to atone for sin, right? Think about what Paul says in Romans 6, right? The wages of sin is death. So if the wages of sin is death, the sinner must die for his sins. But God determined to save his people from death. And so if he's going to save them from death, he's got to do something with the sin. And to remedy the sin problem, God gave his people in the Old Testament animal sacrifices. And the idea of an animal sacrifice is that the the animal would die in the place of the sinner. So as Israelites would come to worship, they would bring their sacrifices. They would come to worship the Lord, and they would bring these animals, and the animal would be sacrificed on behalf of the sinner. Because again, the sinner must die for his sin. God provided a sacrifice, an animal, to die in the sinner's place. So the sin could be forgiven, and the sinner could fellowship with God so that he could worship God. And in a sense, the sinner goes free because God atones for his sin through the animal sacrifice. Now what makes the promise of salvation so shocking is that the Savior who mediates the sacrifice would be that sacrifice. He's not simply just a priest who puts the animal to death. He is the priest who stands in the place of the sinner and sacrifices himself so that the sinner can go free. The Messiah Savior would lay down his life as a sacrifice for sins that would bring salvation to his people. And again, another example. Again, I could march. I had all kinds of verses to share this with you this morning. Didn't have time to put them on the sermon. Here's just an example Isaiah 53, verses 4 to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced. For our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was that chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. 
All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He's not talking about an animal sacrifice there. He's talking about another. Who is that other? It is the one whom God would send. It is the Messiah. God promised through the prophets that the Messiah he was sending to inaugurate this new covenant would lay down his life as the means of redemption. God would save his people through that sacrifice. Again, the Old Testament is replete with prophetic revelation about the promise of God's salvation. In fact, I would contend that the entire Old Testament, I tried to do this when we went through Judges, wanted us to see how it culminates in the way for the Savior, how it's culminating, how it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The entire Old Testament points to how God would save His people at a time in the future under the New Covenant. The early church of the first century and beyond faithfully demonstrated over and over and over again how God revealed His plan of salvation through the prophet. I think of a guy like Irenaeus who wrote a book back in the second century called On the Apostolic Doctrine before the the New Testament was canonized and fully adopted by the church. He is defending the gospel, defending the faith from the Old Testament. How can he do that? Because all of the Old Testament is pointing to Christ. The prophets revealed the grace that was to be ours in Christ Jesus. Peter doesn't use a single proof text here in verse 10 or verses 10 to 12. But his repeated allusions to the Old Testament throughout the letter indicate his conviction that God's redemptive plan to save his people transcends the life experience of his readers. In other words, God was doing more than simply what was going on in the lives of the people that are receiving this letter. God had been working from eternity past to bring them to this point. So that the salvation they are experiencing and, 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 and trusting in and receiving the benefits from far surpass them and their paltry moment in time, even though they're suffering grievous trials. Peter goes even further in verses 10 and 11 when he says the prophets not only prophesied about this salvation, but he says that they looked for it and they hoped for it in their own day. Did you catch that in verses 10 and 11? He says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. In other words, they were asking those questions for themselves. They wanted this salvation for themselves. As they're prophesying this, they were hoping for it themselves. They wanted to participate in this salvation in their lifetimes. And that gives you something, some, some sense of understanding, some indication of the desperation they felt for their own need for this salvation. It gives you a sense of the indication, a sense of, of, of their hope for, their desperation for, the, the glory that would come in this salvation, their great desire for that glory. They wanted to be born again. They wanted to have a living hope. They wanted to share in an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance in heaven. And so they searched, as they're prophesying these things, they searched, they inquired carefully about the times and the circumstances surrounding the fulfillment of God's promises in the hopes that it would be during their lifetimes. In fact, as I was thinking about this, I was 
imagining someone like Simeon. You remember Simeon from the New Testament from the birth of Christ in Luke chapter 2? The Bible doesn't say that Simeon was a prophet, although he did prophesy in that moment. But he did have this expectation of the Messiah coming in his own day. Luke chapter 2, verses 25 to 32. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, the salvation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple and when his parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took up in his arm, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for, and for glory to your people Israel. I wonder if this is what the sentiment was of all those prophets who are prophesying as they're prophesying this to Israel are they saying Lord can we see this day Lord can we participate in these things and the benefits and the glory of your salvation they wanted to be participants in it and not merely announcers of it but Peter says it was not for them the writer of Hebrews says that that they would ultimately participate in it but not in their lifetimes. Hebrews 11.13 says that these all, speaking not just of the prophets, but all the Old Testament saints, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. And then in verse 39, Hebrews 11.39, and all these, again, the prophets, the saints, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. They hoped for it, they wanted to participate in it. They were excited about it. They anticipated it. But it wasn't for them. But Peter goes a step further and says that these promises were not initially for the prophets, but they were for who? For you. Peter emphasizes his readers in this passage when talking about the promises of salvation to the prophets. In verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but who? You. And the things that have now been announced to who? To you. Through those who preach the good news to who? To you. By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. In other words, God in God's providence, God announced the promise of salvation through the prophets for your benefit. And so Peter, as he's writing this to his readers, he wants them to understand that they are beneficiaries of an incredible promise. It's a promise that those who announced it wanted for themselves, that they could not participate in it in their lifetimes. God graciously ordained that Peter's readers would see and know the salvation that they have received. Because of this extraordinary blessing and privilege, they must hold fast to it. They must hope with an even greater hope. They must patiently and steadfastly endure the grievous trials before them. And they must keep walking faithfully according to God's commands. Because by God's grace, they will, will obtain this salvation that God promised. 
Well, friends, we are still living in this day. This era has not yet come to an end. What began with the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ continues. We have not yet reached that final day. The consummation of the age has not yet come, and so we are still living in this day of salvation. And we ought to be encouraged to know that God ordained this salvation for us. And we should also be encouraged to know that God ordained us for this salvation. We are still living in the day of salvation. We have entered into an eternal relationship with God through the new covenant. We have entered in the very same way that the generation of Peter's readers did. These glorious promises are already ours. And this should be an encouragement for us. God designed and directed this day of redemptive history for our advantage. Do you think about that? All of God's workings were for this purpose. And all of God's workings for this purpose were for us, for our advantage, for our benefit. We have been privileged to receive it and enter into it. But it also means that God has given us the grace to endure the various grievous trials that are the ordinary lot of all Christians. And we can endure these trials, as we saw last week, knowing not only what is ours now, but also what will be ours when we obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. And we can live faithfully according to God's holy character, according to our new holy identity, and according to God's holy commands that He sets before His people. So we have seen in this passage that God had promised to us this great salvation, His salvation, in the time of the Old Testament. Observation number two, we see in this passage that we have received God's promise of salvation through the Gospel. We have received God's promise of salvation through the Gospel. Now Peter's point in verses 10 and 10 to 12 is that we have received the salvation that God promised in the Old Testament era. But how was that promise fulfilled and how have we received it? We see first of all that the promise of salvation was fulfilled in the redemptive mission of Jesus Christ. We have received this promise of salvation through Jesus Christ. Jesus was the offspring that God had promised to Adam and Eve. He was the one who would crush the serpent's head. He was the one who would deliver them and their posterity from sin and death. Jesus is also the son of David. He is the Messiah. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords whom God sent to establish his kingdom and to rule over it with perfect righteousness and peace and prosperity and joy. And it is this Jesus, this Messiah, who inaugurated the new covenant. He inaugurates this new covenant because he is the seed, because he is the Messiah. He fulfilled the old, the old covenant in its entirety so as to bring it to an end and to usher in the new. By his mediatorial work, he cleansed us from our sins and gave us a new heart and a new spirit so that we might be really alive, truly alive, spiritually alive, and so that we could live in an eternal relationship with God. But Jesus fulfilled his mission through his suffering. Peter notes in verse 11 that the prophets when prophesying about God's salvation, predicted the sufferings of Christ. We saw that represented in a passage like Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 to 6. Jesus fulfilled the sufferings of Christ. The prophets prophesied the sufferings of Christ. 
Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises, those prophecies. And Jesus reiterated this prophetic promise during his earthly ministry. In Luke chapter 9, verse 22, he says, The Son of Man, in a reference to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. But his death would be the means of atonement and redemption. Jesus also says in Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. How does he serve? And to give his life as a ransom for many. So by his death, Jesus would pay the penalty that our sins deserved. He would suffer the wrath of God for those sins, instead of us having to bear that wrath ourselves. And it would be through his sacrifice that God would forgive us of our sins. And furthermore, he would confer upon us his righteousness so that we might stand acceptably before God on the last day. It is Jesus' death and resurrection that saves us. And that brings us into that imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance that he is keeping for us in heaven. And Peter noted in verses 8 and 9 that his readers never came into personal contact with Jesus. Right? They never saw Jesus face to face. Jesus never came to them. They never observed his miracles, heard his teaching, witnessed his ministry. And neither have we 2,000 years later. Jesus lived for 30 years here on the earth. And after his resurrection from the dead, he ascended into heaven to intercede for us. And to keep the inheritance that our Father has reserved for us. So how is it that we have received this salvation that God promised through the prophets and accomplished in Jesus? Even though we haven't seen Jesus, even though we haven't seen his work or his ministry, how is it that we have come into this great salvation? What is through the preaching of the gospel? Right? That's what Peter says in verse 12. It was revealed to them, the prophets, that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. We have come into this salvation. We have received it for ourselves through the preaching of the gospel. So just as God had ordained the prophets to prophesy about the salvation that would come through Christ, so also God has ordained that the good news about the fulfillment of that salvation be proclaimed and announced to all people. Peter indicates that his hearers became the beneficiaries of God's salvation through the preaching of the gospel. And this is also how we have received it as well. We've all had the incredible blessing in our lives of becoming a Christian, of participating in the salvation, because someone told us the gospel. Someone told us about the sufferings of Christ. Maybe that was a parent, or a friend, or a pastor, or a campus leader. Maybe that hearing of the gospel occurred at home, or at a friend's house, or at a campus ministry, or in a church. Whatever the circumstances were for how he called you to himself, the common denominator is that someone shared the gospel. Someone spoke the gospel to you. Because no one can share in God's salvation. No one can know God's salvation apart from hearing the gospel message. And so just as a point of application, this means that we too must be faithful to communicate that message with others. Those that we know and love, can never participate in the, in the salvation experience that we have experienced unless the gospel is shared with them. In our neighborhoods and schools and workplaces and the nations will never participate in the salvation 
that we have experienced unless the good news is shared with them. So if you think for a moment, right? I know God's providence brought the gospel to you. But imagine for a moment just what your life would be like. Well, you can think about what your life was like before you heard the gospel. What would your life be like if you had never heard the gospel? What would your life look like if no one had ever shared the gospel with you? In God's providence, the means by which he brings his elect exiles into the glory of their salvation is through the preaching of the gospel. And so we hear the words of Paul in Romans 10, verses 14 to 17. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless, some, unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So the point that Peter is making here is that what the prophets could only foretell, and what the prophets desperately wanted for themselves, his readers have received. By God's electing and providential grace, Peter's readers had lived in the day when those promises had become a reality. And by God's grace and providence, someone had shared this good news with them so that they could believe and trust in Christ. And what was true for those readers in Peter's day is true for us who are living nearly 2,000 years later. We have received these same promises through the preaching of the gospel. As Peter winds up here in verse 12, he wants us to understand that this salvation is no small thing. Let's see the last observation. Observation number three. We are supremely blessed because of God's salvation. We are supremely blessed because of God's salvation. I won't belabor this point because this has really been the topic of the last three sermons. But I think it is worth noting briefly again. It is no small thing to have received God's salvation. On the contrary, we are abundantly blessed. We are supremely blessed because we have received it. And what have we received in God's salvation? Peter says a couple of things. He says, first of all, in verse 10, that we have received grace. Concerning this salvation, the prophets prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. I think he's using the word grace here as a synonym for salvation. And the idea here is that we have received this salvation by grace. We've done absolutely nothing to merit God's salvation. We've contributed nothing to our salvation except for our own sin, by which God graciously provided that salvation. God has been gracious beyond all comprehension to save us of our sins and to make us his people. We are supremely blessed because we have received His grace. He also says in verse 12 that we have received the Holy Spirit. As Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel 36, 25-27, we read earlier, the Holy Spirit is the promise of the new covenant. Every believer hears the gospel by the Holy Spirit. And every believer is born again because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And every believer receives the Holy Spirit and His abiding presence remains with us daily encouraging us in the promise of salvation, helping us to live out our salvation and preserving us for the glorious realities of our salvation at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets did not have the Holy Spirit in the same way that we do. 
To be sure, the Holy Spirit inspired them, Peter says, to predict the sufferings of Christ and its subsequent glories. But they didn't fully understand what the Spirit was revealing to them, and they didn't inwardly experience the life of the Spirit that is given as a promise to every believer in the New Covenant. So part of the blessing of salvation is the Spirit's presence abiding in our lives, confirming our salvation, working out our salvation, and preserving us for our salvation. We are indeed supremely blessed. What the prophets could only hope for is truly ours. But Peter also here makes one more statement that shows the extraordinary blessing of our salvation. Verse 12. This kind of tacks it on there at the end. Almost like a, it almost sounds like it's a, a thing to kind of put at the end there. But it's interesting what he says. He says, and I'll just read the whole verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from, sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So Peter shows here again the extraordinary blessing of our salvation with this statement that angels long to look into it. They long to look into our salvation. I don't have time to do a complete doctrine of angels, but Peter's statement here is captivating. Psalm 8.4 says that God made human beings a little lower than the angels. Angelic appearances in the scriptures show them to possess a supernatural glory that surpasses our human glory. And yet the angels know nothing about God's salvation except what they observe in us. Christ died not for the redemption of angels, and Christ did not, and angels do not participate in the sacrifice of Christ in any way as we do. The angels have not entered into a new covenant with Christ. The angels have not been promised an inheritance in Christ. They are not united to Christ as we are. They won't rule and reign with Christ as we will. They won't be his people as we are. They aren't his chosen race, his royal priesthood, his holy nation, a people for his own possession. These things are reserved for us. The angels only know about this great salvation from what they witness in us. And according to Peter, it is something that they are fascinated by. They are things into which they long to look. They are understanding what salvation is because of us. They can't participate in it as we do. And I'm going I'm to hold my tongue because I really want to say what I always say. I'm going to say it. Don't compare yourself to an angel. Don't compare yourself to an angel and think, I hear it all the time when people die, right? Oh, heaven got a new angel. Don't desecrate yourself in that way. Christ didn't die for the angels. He died for you. Angels can't participate in the sufferings of Christ as you do. We have been given an exalted privilege and status because of what Christ has done. The angels have not. They long to look into this. They understand something about it because of what they see, how it see that it works in our lives. Angels long to look into these things, Peter says. And for that, we are extremely, abundantly, supremely privileged and blessed. So the central thrust of not just verses 10 to 12, but really the first 12, first 12 verses of 1 Peter is this, that we are supremely blessed, that we are incredibly privileged because we have received God's salvation in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets didn't receive it. The angels didn't receive it. We are the objects of God's special grace. 
and electing love. So brothers and sisters, treasure your salvation. Don't treat it as some small and trite thing. Don't trifle it with it as some cheap trinket. Understand what God has done for you in Christ. Understand what is yours because you are in Christ. And then hope in it and live according to it. Great is the salvation of the Lord. And we are its beneficiaries. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the gospel. We're thankful, Lord, for the promise of salvation. That is no longer just merely a promise. That it is a reality for us. That we are experiencing the first fruits of it even now in this life. Even as we endure various trials. Even as we face all kinds of temptations. Even as we yet wait for the fulfillment of it. We have tasted it. We have experienced it. And I pray, Lord, that we would be overjoyed by it. I pray, indeed, that we would say with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That we would understand, Lord, that because of what you have done, that we are supremely blessed. And that it would lead us, Lord, to not only praise you, but to walk in this way of salvation. Father, I pray for those that are struggling this morning through various trials that you would help them to cling more tightly to their salvation, to cling tightly to Christ, and to continue to endure through those trials and temptations so that they may be found faithful, Father, that they might receive the, the glory and the honor and the praise that you will give to them at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, also for those this morning who are, who are struggling in their faith, that you would give them assurance of faith because they can see, Lord, that this, what you have worked, you have done in times past is for us. And that we are the beneficiaries of all that you have done. I pray, Lord, for those this morning maybe who are holding their salvation too loosely. Who are considering it, Lord, as some small thing or perhaps as some cheap trinket. I pray that today you would help them to see the, the gravity of what you have done for us. That you would draw them to yourself once again. Father, they would repent of their sin and they would cling tightly to Christ and to walk in your way. So we pray you'd help us. Help us to treasure what you've given to us. We are so grateful for it. And we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.